Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is Meredith Evans-Seeley. She's a research scientist and an NRC postdoctoral fellow. Uh, she's part of the National Institute of Standards and Technology called NIST. And we're going to talk about microplastics and how they affect uh, marine environments. So, Meredith, thank you so much for coming. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about how you came to NIST, and what, you know, what your background was and why uh, you're interested in microplastics and marine environments. Yeah. So it's funny, you know, unlike many of my marine science co-workers, I didn't spend much time on the ocean as a kid. But one trip when I was uh, about 14 years old, I got to visit Hawaii where I live now and I fell in love with the ocean and wanted to learn more. So I have two degrees in marine science. One is a master's in marine science from the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, which is down in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, when I was there, I was really passionate about starting research that helped us understand more about how to protect the oceans from all of the threats that we put on them and all the pressure that we as human societies place on our coastal environments. Um, so there I studied oil spill pollution following the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Uh, after that, I headed to the Virginia Institute of Marine Science for my PhD. And there I studied microplastics and their kind of fate and effects in the marine environment and their effects on everything from microbial ecosystems all the way up to salmonid fishes that we love to eat. So now I sit at the, I'm at the National Institute of Standards and Technology here, NIST. Um, and as an employee of NIST, I'm required to tell you that I do not speak for them or endorse anything on their behalf. But I also work at the Hawaii Pacific University Center for Marine Debris Research, where we study everything from the micro scale of the tiniest nanoplastics up to big mega plastic nets that wash up on our shores. I'll be here for a few more months. Um, and then I'm actually transitioning into a faculty position at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. So um, always science on the move, but the, the common theme is understanding what is putting pressures on our oceans and how we can alleviate that. What does that mean, pressures? What is, uh, for microplastics in particular, what yeah, are you my... What's happening? What bodies of water are you looking at? Yeah. So, you know, I, I try not to be too specific with the focus of the research necessarily, but right now my, my focus is definitely microplastics in our major ocean basins. Um, so microplastics are a really interesting pollutant to study. I, I study all types of environmental contaminants, but microplastics are so unique because I think of any microplastic that you might pull from a beach in Hawaii as kind of like a snowflake. All microplastics are different from each other. Um, and this is because they have different chemistries from the polymers that they're made of, the different types of chemicals that are added to the products to help them serve their purpose, and they break down in different ways. So we really have our work cut out for us, understanding how they're going to affect the marine environment because they are so diverse to begin with. All right. So what are some examples? Are you looking at fish? Are you looking at accumulation of microplastics and, you know, seabed floor? I mean, 
What do you work? Yeah. So some of my previous work looking at effects looked at fish. Um, so I worked with rainbow trout, which are a type of salmonid species. So they're related to the salmon that we all like to eat when we're on a diet and looking at how they affected the disease progression of how microplastics affected disease progression in those fish. Microplastics are really interesting because when we first started studying them, we were all thinking, oh my goodness, they're going to kill everything, you know, and, and we figured out quickly that at the concentrations they're at in the environment, we don't usually see mortality or death as the most common endpoint, but they lead to a lot of stress. So there's different types of systemic stress, endocrine disruption, immune disruption, all sorts of things. So some of my previous work was looking at how that type of sublethal stress kind of chronically when microplastics are in these environments, such as where salmon and other fish live, can affect their ability to fight off viruses. So that's some of the, the work that I've done looking at effects. One of the things that I'm looking at right now is more related to the microplastic chemistry. So one of the big challenges that we have in marine science and tracing plastics throughout our oceans is that when we pick up that piece of plastic on the beach that is our, our little snowflake in our um, lab, we are not sure how long it's been in the ocean. So plastics have been in mass production since the 1950s and presumably pollution that long, but we actually have no way to timestamp how long a piece of plastic has been in the ocean when we pull it out. Um, so Why? I think why, why can't that be done? Yeah, there's no great way to do it. So there are a lot of different avenues that we could look at to do that. Some of them are just kind of matching up the history of plastic production with what we're finding in the environment. So you could think that there are certain chemicals or polymers that weren't used, you know, 30 years ago that are used now. So if you see those, you would know it's a but, relatively newer piece of plastic. I mean, but we hear, oh, uh, this takes a thousand years to degrade. This takes uh, five years to degrade. So is that data not reliable? Is it just made up or how could that be no. applied to establish the provenance of some plastic? Yeah, so so those data are not necessarily not reliable, but they are based off of predictions. And those predictions are kind of for how long a piece of plastic might take to degrade are really different than what we would use to figure out how long a piece of plastic has been in the environment. So when plastics enter the marine environment, we're still learning a lot about how they fragment into smaller pieces. That's how we end up with all these microplastics as these large pieces of plastic make their way, you know, into your rivers and down to your oceans and then they get stressed out by wave action and sunlight and interaction with different organisms and that breaks them into smaller bits. But that's not the type of degradation we're talking about when we're thinking about, you know, thousands of years as the lifetime of a plastic bag, for example. That's breaking it down all the way into its constituents. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, So there's a, a lot of research actually on understanding how long a piece of plastic would persist in the environment. And it's all based off modeling and predictions, right? So we have not been around thousands of years to observe a piece of plastic degrading that or residing for that long, but we can do some degradation studies and see how long it takes for it to start to break down and then extrapolate from there. uh, When they say something breaks down in X number of years, what does that mean breaks down? Exactly. So that's what I'm getting at. When we're talking about how long the plastic could survive in the environment, that breaking down is all the way down to its chemical constituents, right? We can no longer even see the plastic. Um, But that's not what's actually happening right now in the marine environment. When we talk about, you know, a 
styrofoam cup or a plastic bag going from, you know, the local shopping center down the stream to the river to the ocean. As it fragments, it's not breaking down into its chemical constituents so that it's no longer a problem. It's just breaking into pieces that get a little bit smaller over time. And that's where we get microplastics and nanoplastics from. And it's difficult to take one of those microplastics that might have come from that cup or that bag and say how long that's been in the environment. So we're working on some chemical indicators that we might be able to use to understand that kind of age of a plastic in the marine environment. Okay. I mean, in terms of seeing a plastic too, that's not even relevant either because a microplastic is mean microscopic. So it, it yeah. just seems like the definition just makes like zero sense. Of microplastic? No, of, of something breaking down. Yes. You know, if something breaks down into 50 quadrillion microplastics when it was one monolithic uh, soda bottle or plastic bag, you know, what's the impact of those two? And so broken down, it seems like the word means nothing. And also when something quote unquote breaks down, does that mean now it's harmless or it's caused again? It's it's multiplied the number of plastics in it by, you know, again, quintillions because now it's composed of quintillions of pieces of microplastic instead of one monolithic large piece of plastic. Exactly. Yeah. The the messaging is really confusing, right? So when we say like it takes a plastic bag thousands of years to break down, that's talking about all the way down into these chemicals that they don't matter anymore. But you're exactly right that when we talk about things fragmenting and breaking into smaller pieces, we're just creating more plastic in the process. So that is uh, definitely an impact that we we don't want to think of as a positive, that type of fragmentation and breakdown um, as we're creating more and more plastics. But plastics of different sizes have different effects. So all plastics are a bit of a concern in the marine environment. You can think about these giant sheets of plastic film and large nets as being really big threats for ingestion by whales or entanglement of other marine life. But you can also think of the, the really small micro and nanoplastics and how those can make their way into the tissues of fish deep into their organs, affect the way their organ systems function, the way they're able to fight off disease and survive in their environment. So everything from the small to the large has a different effect. And that's uh, one of the reasons we really, as scientists, have our work cut out for us in understanding this plastic pollution problem. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Are they all just being researched equally or which ones appear to be the most problematic? I think right now the ones that we have the least information on are on what's called nanoplastics. So nanoplastics are anything that's less than one micrometer in diameter. Um, and for reference, your a strand of hair is anywhere from about 50 to 100 micrometers. So we're talking about even much, much smaller than our, our strands of hair are wide. 
Um, and these nanoplastics are really interesting because they get to a certain size and they have different behaviors at that point. Their chemistry becomes a little bit different. We're not quite sure how they move through different types of environments, but some of the reasons that we're concerned about them are from an organismal health standpoint, not just for things living in the oceans or our streams and waterways, but also for humans too, because we're surrounded by plastics in our day-to-day lives. As, uh, you know, your fabric and your clothing and all of the products that you use shed nanoplastics, does that make its way into your lung tissue, for example, or other organs that might affect, you know, your overall health? Okay, so what what are some of the research questions that are being looked at right now, you know, under your purview that you've seen? Well, some of the biggest questions that I think we have to address before we can address how they're affecting our health is the best way to measure them. So they're really unique in that these are physical particles, but they're so small that we almost need tools that are used for chemicals to analyze them instead of physical particles. So from an analysis standpoint, we really run into an issue where we don't have the methodology developed or widely used enough to analyze nanoplastics on a a really tangible scale. So I think before we are even able to address the health and effects, we, we have to get methods up and running that are able to analyze these small, small particles in big enough sample batches that we, we can feel confident in them. So that's some of the work that's. Yeah, so there are some like very fine microscopy techniques that you can use down to the larger scale of nanoplastics, but beyond even, you know, just under the one micron size range, we're looking at methodologies that are more based upon the plastic chemistry. So what we're doing, for example, at NIST is there are a lot of different labs who are working with different techniques and comparing how our techniques measure the same type of sample, for example, and how we can learn more about nanoplastics from combining things that typically weren't used to analyze plastics at all. What do you mean? Like what? Yeah. So like, um, for example, we might be using different types of chromatography and spectrometry um, that are typically used for larger pieces, but we might prepare a sample differently. So we might concentrate the plastics that are in this nano size range and to get a lot of nanoplastics in one sample to analyze it. Other techniques are more like single particle analysis. So instead of looking at the aggregate of all of the nanoplastics in, you know, 20 liters of seawater, we might be looking at in this, you know, tiny, tiny sample of water, what's this one particle look like? Um, so we really need to merge those techniques in order to make the big trends there. But if these are so small, what's the point of analyzing seawater? I mean, it's such so vast. How would you be able to get any useful information from it? Yeah, so that's kind of the the old adage, right? The solution to pollution is dilution, um, which I think anyone who studies contaminants in the marine environment always scoffs at a bit as this old way of thinking. One of the reasons that it's really important to understand them is because it's a an additional stressor in an ecosystem of stress, right? So we have a lot of different things that are added to the environment by humans, particularly in the marine environment, but also natural stressors such as disease diseases and viruses and all sorts of predation pressures and things that all work together to have an effect. So sometimes when we have, you know, results that might be unexplainable or something, we start to wonder what those other stressors might be. Um, And I think as we get a better understanding of these small micro and nanoplastics, we'll start to see the holes that those might fill in some of the research gaps that we currently have that we never thought plastics would fill. What does that mean? Are you looking at body burden studies or... How is anyone quantifying the effects of microplastics on on fish or other creatures? 
Yes, body burden is a, a main place to start. And that's really where we'll gather baseline data to understand, you know, how much of a problem this really is. So there are a lot of assumptions, particularly about these small micro and nanoplastics that A, they're everywhere and B, they're in everything. But without actually measuring that to confirm it, we don't know for sure. As we do measure plastics in different types of locations or body tissues, we tend to find them. So we we can reliably kind of predict that they, they are everywhere. But understanding their body burden is important in order to see, you know, what those concentrations are. And then you can take that and translate it into different types of assays and studies that allow you to focus on one system at a time, like certain organ or a certain immune system or response that you're able to then understand what the effects of those types of concentrations might be on the, the whole organismal scale. Okay. So in your transition, are you going to be working on different research questions or what's that going to look like for you when you move on? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll still continue to work on plastics and plastics are my main focus right now. I think they're a really fascinating contaminant, but some of the research that I'm interested in is outside of the world of plastics as well, looking at different types of contaminants in the marine environment. Um, So we have lots of legacy contaminants from old environmental spills, as well as some emerging contaminants such as perm polyfluoral alkylated substances or PFAS, um, which are related to plastics. So I, I think I'll be breaking into that type of connection between plastics and other contaminants as well. Um, in fact, a lot of the kind of contaminants that we study in the marine environment, such as flame retardants, are actually directly related to plastics. They're compounds that are added to plastics to help them serve their function. So making these connections between compounds that we've been measuring in the environments for decades and how they relate to plastic pollution that we've only been measuring for the past 10 years will be a, a really big topic of interest in my research. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to learn about more about what you're doing? You know, right now it might be difficult, but once you move, what are some resources for them or, or do you not know yet? You know, that's a great question. I'd love to check back in with you on that one. But I think a good Google is always gets us pretty far, right? So we we're able to find a lot if we go to the Virginia Institute of Marine Science website, for example, um, or, or other places. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Mary, yeah. thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I know microplastics, not a lot is known relatively in the field and uh, incredibly difficult and complicated. So I appreciate you uh, dealing with questions as best you can. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. And I hope I've sparked some interest in plastic pollution for you. It's a, a really complex but important field for us to continue researching. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.